Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Roger Severino. Roger is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where he directs the HHS Accountability Project. He also is working on a book on how conservatives can harness the power of the administrative state for conservative ends, uh, long sought after by the American people. Uh, Roger is also a national authority on civil rights, conscience, and religious freedom, uh, the administrative state, information privacy, and particularly has applied to uh, healthcare law and policy. Uh, and before joining the EPPC, uh, Roger was the director of the Office of Civil Rights at the, Uni- at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where you led a team of 250 people, uh, really focused on civil rights, conscience, and religious liberty, and health information privacy laws, and you served there for four years. Uh, so that came to a, an abrupt end with the election, didn't it, Roger? Unfortunately, it did, but we accomplished so much in four years for conscience and religious freedom, and now the goal is to make sure that none of that is reversed Unfortunately, the signs from the Biden administration are not good with some pretty radical appointments. Becerra being the top at HHS, Dr. Rachel Levine, people who I tangled with pretty extensively when I was at HHS. And I hope we get a chance to talk about some of my adventures then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I do want to talk about that uh, because you guys did accomplish such great work. Um, but I also wanted to hit first on, you know, you resigned right, you know, as the administrations were changing uh, then you ended up joining the EPPC. Uh, you were reappointed to the Administrative Conference of the United States to a second three-year term. And after you get appointed, you, you get a notice from uh, President Biden. What does that notice say? It said that my services were no longer required. It was a little bit more aggressive than that, that uh, they were going to terminate me despite what Congress said. They appointed me, the president did, President Trump, to a three-year term for an administrative conference that is essentially a good government think tank. That's part of the best way of thinking about it. Right. doesn't really have executive power. I'm not in the Oval Office moving the policy levers. It's to give advice on regulations and how to improve transparency for the administrative state. So I have an expertise in that. I was a regulator. I have a lot to offer. Harvard Law Degree graduate. What is President Biden afraid of that he wants to cut my term short? And by the way, it's unlawful. President Trump did not cut the term short of any Obama appointees to this council. So it's a very curious thing for him to go after me and a couple others. Uh, He had promised unity and bipartisanship. This is the exact opposite. It's petty. It's vindictive. It's unlawful. And just a few short days, we'll be hearing his response because I'm not going to be one to be bullied. And that's why I sued the president. Well, and rightfully so. I mean, now, did he try to get rid of anybody else off that council, too? Or is he just focused on you at this point? It, it was curious. He left some Trump, Trump appointees and he, he tried to push out some others, me included. And there's no explanation. I asked for one. What is the basis for this move? And I received silence at the other at the other end. But I do think it is highly ideological and vindictive. It's, they don't probably don't like what I've stood for, what I've done, what I've done with the Trump administration. I'm really looking forward to hear their answer and their justification. Are they going to take the traditionally conservative jurisprudential view 
and say that independent agencies are under the authority of the president, a unitary executive theory? We'll see. We'll see what they argue. But they have to argue something. Um, and they're, they're, they're kind of trapped. I think they're, they either have to admit that it has something to do with an ideological difference or they don't like the stand I took for religious freedom or conscience or something about me personally. Or it's about they want to flex executive power um, and break some pretty long-standing precedents and, in fact, statutes. So it cannot be that we play by one set of rules and respect those precedents that are out there, even some we disagree with, but we play by those rules. And yet once the Democrats and Biden gets in power, they flip it and then they switch the rules on us, move the goalposts. I'm sorry, I don't believe in unilateral disarmament. I think that there has to be one consistent rule in how we go forward, and it can't be heads they win, tails we lose. That's just a, a stack deck or, or a rigged game. Well, I mean, in, in the end, right, when you don't when you don't want a dissenting opinion, what do you have to do? You have to try to snuff it out, and that really is anti-American when you think about it. Um, you know, you were in charge of the Office of Civil Rights for four years at the Department of Health and Human Services. What are some of the highlights? You know, you did a lot of stuff. Your your department did some great work, really defending conscience, religious liberty, life issues. If you had to pick one or two things that you really like to hang your hat on, what, what would those be? I'm most proud of two things. First, we reinvigorated conscience and religious liberty enforcement to a degree that it's now institutionalized into the fabric of the federal government. We had never seen that before administrations, both Democrat and Republican, had really not done much at all to further actual conscious enforcement of laws that were already on the books. So we launched a conscience and religious freedom division to institutionalize those protections that had been long neglected. And especially under Obama, they were hostile to those rights. They went after the little sisters of the poor, for example, to require them to provide contraceptive coverage to fellow nuns. We reversed reverse those things one after another after another and then replaced it with an institutional force. There were 17 career professionals there to enforce laws passed on a bipartisan basis. So for example, doctors would not be forced to assist in abortions. Uh, people would not be required to pay for abortions through their insurance. This is where I butted heads with Javier Becerra when he was Attorney General of California multiple times. That division found him in violation of conscience laws twice, twice. He has unfortunately been now confirmed as head of HHS, and that's presenting a gross conflict of interest. You can't go after the cops that arrested you and now that you're the new sheriff, right? He's got to be recused from any of those decisions where he was a named party and found in violation of the law because he disrespected the conscience. I want to spend a lot more time on conscience, but you mentioned one of the two things we're right. most proud of. I was most proud of as well the work we did on disability rights. It is such a beautiful union of pro-life forces and disability rights forces and civil rights groups. Under the four years under Trump, we accomplished more than, than eight years under Obama, respecting the inherent human dignity of every person, regardless of their circumstances of birth or their genetics or their disabilities, especially during COVID, when we found out that some states, when it came to the question of rationing ventilators, some states were saying people with disabilities would be barred, would not, would be given a death sentence. One state in particular said, quote, persons with, quote, severe mental retardation, end quote, using that archaic language, would be ineligible for ventilators in case of shortage. Could you imagine that? 
how callous that would be. And we intervened in union with all those groups together to change state after state plan to make sure that they would not put people with disabilities at the back of the line or older Americans to not throw them overboard when the going gets tough. It was a, a wonderful effort we did and took a lot of work when it was needed most. So those are the two things I'm most proud of. Well, and I think, you know, just that defense of the dignity of human life, no matter where on the spectrum people are, you know, from conception through natural death, whether they have disabilities, everybody has an innate dignity. And to know that you guys were fighting for that and won is great. I mean, you would think, especially when it comes to the disability piece, everybody should be able to agree on that. But, you know, when we're dealing with ideologues who are, you know, either going after the little sisters of the poor, right? We basically have, you know, Dr. Levine, right, is biologically a male. So you, you really have people running the HHS that are totally disregarding science and the dignity of human life right now, don't we? That's right. If you get the fundamental questions wrong, so many things will flow from that. And one of the things we changed that Secretary Azar signed off on was changing our strategic plan to make sure that not only are we defending all persons, but making clear that it's from conception to natural death. That's the scientific view, that's the moral view, that's the biological view, that's the federal government view. Time and again, we need to keep stressing that's what life is. Everybody needs to be protected at all stages. And if you get that wrong, so many things will flow uh, from that mistake. So we are very clear and we're, we're very eager to see whether or not Biden and Becerra and Levine will retreat from that clear statement of principle and clear statement of science that respects all human life from conception until natural death. I'm not optimistic, given the signs we saw with Biden saying he's going to reverse all these pro-life policies, including the Hyde Amendment that prohibits federal funds from funding abortion. And again, I fought with Becerra on the question of requiring people to pay for abortion insurance. He was actually forcing an order of nuns in California to to buy abortion insurance for fellow nuns. That's how bad it got. And it cost his state $200 million in HHS funds. And it was per quarter, the disallowance we levied on him. And again, the question is, is he going to retreat from that? Now, Biden loves to talk about his, his praying the rosary constantly, but he has so many times been flouting clear Catholic doctrine and teaching on the respect of the sanctity of human life, not only on the legality of abortion, but now on the question of forcing other people to pay for it. And we're, it's just so sad to see that he's retreating from this bipartisan, popular American consensus. Hyde Amendment has been there for decades. The Weldon Amendment has been there for decades. Presidents of both parties have signed it. He's the first one to be retreating from it. And that really shows that he does not take the sanctity of life seriously. Well, and you mentioned, right, uh, Biden claims to be a practicing Catholic, Becerra you know, claims to be a practicing Catholic, yet they go against pretty much all the moral teachings, foundational teachings of the Catholic Church. What they really are is wolves in sheep's clothing. And it's not, all you have to do is go back and look at the record, right? At one point, Biden actually supported the Hyde Amendment, um, but we've changed that. And you got Becerra running HHS, who has no, he's an attorney who has no experience in the health and human services field. That's right. He has no public health experience to speak of. He worked on Obamacare 
and that was terrible for the defense of human life in so many ways. Um, but it at least did have Hyde Amendment protections, which they're now trying to take away. And that's that it, it just shows that ideology is driving things in the middle of a pandemic. You would expect a public health official with experience, epidemiology, uh, even a doctor, maybe, or at least somebody from the healthcare field. That is not Becerra. He's a lawyer who is ideologically driven, who is most famous as attorney general for pursuing a radical abortion agenda. Again, we found him in violation twice of federal law. He sued two times to block initiatives from my office to defend conscience and one on restoring the uh, uh, proper understanding of male and female when it comes to HHS funded programs under Title IX and, and Section 1557, what it was called. And I had actually met with Dr. Levine to discuss the issues of transgender medicine. Dr. Levine was, of course, very active in that field and uh, is, is an activist as well. Yep. And I was very disappointed when Senator Rand Paul questioned Levine on the question of transgender surgeries and treatments on minors. And the answer we heard was, Senator Paul, it's a complicated issue, and I'm happy to brief you on it. I received such a briefing from Dr. Levine personally when I was considering these issues and the transgender mandate at HHS. And when I asked that question, the, it was very clear that when it came to adolescence, that is, you know, pe- people that are uh, starting or after puberty, then yes, of course, if they have gender dysphoria, it'd be fine to provide cross-sex hormones and surgeries. And it's that sort of ideologically, ideology first move that is pushing away science and is ultimately experimenting on children that is leading to pushbacks among the states. You saw Arkansas say you can't force doctors to assist in these surgeries against their will and can't perform them on minors. And we're going to see more and more of this because we really have to put the science first and leave the ideology for for uh, the, the backseat activists. They shouldn't be driving things. No, and you have Dr. Levine, who who is a male, who is abdicate, advocating for child abuse because when you pump cross-sex hormones and puberty-blocking jugs, uh, drugs, you're chemically castrating children. And this is somebody who, yeah, who claims to be a doctor but denies science, denies natural law, and denies reality. But that's, unfortunately, the the situation we find ourselves in because elections have consequences. Uh, I mean, how disappointing. You know, you guys do such great work for four years, and you watch, you know, Con Air come in and just try to erase everything you did. I mean, I know you're, you know, you're— you said, you know, hopefully they won't. But in reality, there's not a snowball's chance in hell that they're not going to try to reverse everything you've done. I, I'm presuming they're going to make an effort. Right. That's what I mean. Make the effort is, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is a political cost because these views that I was defending for the last four years are popular. They're common sense. Most people think doctors shouldn't be forced to assist an abortion or remove healthy reproductive tissue from minors when those minors might change their minds. And they don't, they, most people think, yeah, don't force doctors to do these sorts of things. And that's what I stood up for is that sort of freedom. And that's actually much, much greater for diversity because you don't want to drive out Catholic hospitals. You don't want to drive out doctors of conscience and faith and professional ethics. 
you'll have fewer doctors, you'll have fewer hospitals. But again, if ideology comes first, that's what you're going to end up with. And there's some very organized, very well-funded forces on the left that are advocating for these experimental treatments and more than just advocating for them, forcing them on people and seeing people have no other option. There's only one direction you could go. It can only be, uh, you cannot do anything affirming your, your biological sex. It could only be crossing over. That's one of these things we keep seeing over and over again. It's, it's trying to uh, be a winner take all type circumstance where if children who in many ways are left just to their own devices will naturally resolve symptoms being channeled and put on a, on a railroad track going always in one direction. And people are saying, maybe we need to take a, a breather and think through clearly what the implications of all these things are. Um, because we're, we're used to having a society of a sense of freedom, not coercion on these matters, but it's moving more and more to, towards the side of coercion. And, and that's a sad thing. Well, anybody listening to this conversation can understand after the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes, why the Biden administration would go after you because you're defending truth. You're defending, you know, religious freedom. You're, you're defending people's consciences. And what are they doing? They're trying to outlaw and eliminate the truth. And if somebody speaks it, we got to get rid of them because we can't have them get in our way of us trying to not only force this on people, but really indoctrinate people's thinking that, you know what, it's not every life is, has, has equal value. And we're going to tell you what to think and how to do it. And if not, you need to get out of the way, right? It's, it's sad. One of the first things I did when I was head of the civil rights office at HHS was reach out to people who had criticized me coming in. I reached out to the pro-choice groups. I reached out to the LGBT groups. I reached out to Dr. Levine to learn, to listen, to hear as much and to show respect Mm -hmm. because everybody deserves to be treated with respect, um, no matter their walk of life. And that's very much the Christian thing to do. Um, and that's part of the understanding of the human person. So, I, I try to find these areas of common ground. I did make some good relations with folks that were on the other side. Uh, I did coordinate with, for example, the ACLU on disability rights. So wherever we could find areas of common ground, I was always welcome to find it. There were some people, however, who were very ideologically driven that you could tell it was really not going to make it much of a difference. And it's those type of folks, unfortunately, that uh, create further division in, in our country. When you demonize people, when you engage in the name calling, you know, calling people bigots with, with reckless abandon, it, it scares a lot of people away from speaking what they believe. And that is sad. There should be a free exchange of ideas, popular and unpopular. The First Amendment is there to protect mostly unpopular ideas. The free exercise clause of the First Amendment is mostly to protect unpopular religious beliefs because the popular ones really don't need as much protection. That's what it goes to. But we're moving away from this idea of true tolerance where we can have this exchange of ideas to a very much doctrinaire, one-size-fits-all view of things that if you dare to speak up on the other side of, of these questions, that you will be vilified, you will be canceled, you will be doxxed, which is a new phenomenon over the last three or four years. But definitely picking up speed every each and every day, unfortunately. 
You know, you'd mentioned uh, what uh, Governor Asa Hutchinson uh, signed into law uh, just recently, allowing doctors to decline to perform non-emergency medical procedures that violate their moral and religious beliefs. And I know this law will take effect, I think, sometime in August. But how important is this legislation and how important is it is it for other states to take this up? Because at the federal level, what we got going on now, it's going to be full on assault, especially when we you know, hear them trying to push through the Equality Act. Well, the Equality Act is is uh, not just a nose under the tent. It's the full camel inside the tent. If that gets through. Yeah. They specifically exclude the Religious Freedom Restoration Act from it, uh, its ambit. So RIFRA protects against religious discrimination and burdens against every federal encroachment. Universal. It's unique in that way. The Equality Act would specifically say that this law does not apply, and that would just be open season on people and institutions of faith. And the Equality Act, of course, everybody should be treated with dignity and respect. It goes much further it's going to do things like lead to uh, biological men competing in women's sports. That's what's going to happen with the Equality Act. It's going to be a, a, a obfuscation of the biological relevance of male and female when it comes to medicine and science. Even in drug trials and drug tests, they take into account what the effects are between male and female subjects. Those things matter because they're biological realities. Those things are critically important. What Arkansas has done is, is, is been excellent in this regard. It's saying that in the name of tolerance, we're going to say that doctors don't need to participate in research activities that they disagree with on a matter of conscience, in medical procedures. And one of the important things to know, as you mentioned, emergency services are left untouched as well as other civil rights laws are left untouched. However, it's limited to procedures and, and those medical services. It's not based on somebody's judgment about a person or a person's identity or their walk of life. It's about particular procedures and a doctor's ability to make their own judgments. Uh, and that's what's so important about this law. It restores that level of of protection for doctors who are going to exercise their conscience. And again, a lot of this would be undone with things like the Equality Act, right? And the federal law often can trump state law, but we're going to need states to step up and push, push, push in case the Equality Act ever becomes law, then at least we'll have some arguments uh, that these state laws should be respected as well. Well, which is why they're trying to get rid of the filibuster so they have a better chance of passing this Equality Act. And I think for people listening, I mean, you think, well, what would a doctor object to? Well, imagine uh, a 13-year-old girl coming in, says, I'm really a boy, and says, I want a double mastectomy. With the Equality Act, he would have to operate on her, wouldn't he? If it's medically indicated, right? Yeah. They don't have hemophilia or something. Right, right. You, would, you, could get, you could get a doctor's note from a psychologist saying... I believe this is medically indicated to, to have this, uh, what they call top surgery on a 13 year old child because it'll be good for that, that, that child's mental health. And if a doctor is capable of performing that surgery safely under something like the Equality Act, they would be required to do so, right? If they receive federal funds. 
uh, that's one of the keys. They got to receive federal right, funds. right, which almost everybody uh, does or, at this point in some form or fashion. Yeah. And additionally, if they're considered a public accommodation, they would be covered as well, which under Title II, which they're also amending, they are considering health functions as public accommodations. So they, they're going to do it under, under both ways. And otherwise, it's going to be considered an unlawful form of gender identity slash sex discrimination to say you, you can do this surgery to remove cancer cells. Well, then why can't you remove it to to affirm this person's chosen gender identity because they have a doctor's note from a psychologist and then the lawsuits would come under the Equality Act. That That's exactly what would happen under these things and the advocates know that that's what happened, what would happen under these laws. Well, and you know, the Supreme Court decision this past session, you know, Bostock versus Clayton County where it made you know, basically gender ideology a civil right when it comes to employment law I mean, really, that's just Pandora's box that that got opened. And you can just see with the Equality Act and everything where where this thing is going and people need to stand up. Now, you're running, uh, you know, at the uh, EPPC, uh, the HHS Accountability Project. How can people track what you're doing on that? Because we got about, you know, a minute and a half, two minutes to go. How can people follow what you're doing so they can be aware of all the things that are going on in this new administration? Sure. You could follow me on Twitter, Roger Severino underscore, and you could follow EPPC, get on their, their email lists as well. EPPC is Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, the HHS Accountability Project is designed to do precisely that. We're going to be a watchdog, making sure that the Biden administration, Becerra and Levine, will respect the mission of HHS, which is to further the health and well-being of all Americans, and that includes from conception to natural death. That means science being uh, the forefront over ideology. That means we respect conscience and religious freedom, and it's an incredible effort. We have a couple new um, team members, Rachel Morrison and David Gortler, who have joined us. It's, it's, we're off to a fantastic start. And we're going to be effective uh, on areas where we could cooperate, like disability rights. We would love to cooperate on areas where there are differences, and we're going to be doing our best to expose uh, anything that is bad policy and holding HHS accountable to it. Well, I think it's really important, and people need to follow what's going on because you're not going to get uh, what's happening in the news. So. Really appreciate you doing that. And, uh, you know, Roger, I hope people follow what you're doing because you know you know what should be done and keeping an eye on that and letting people know is so critical. Thanks for your time, Roger. 